Chapter Four of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Four, wide open and unguarded stand our gates, named by the four winds, north, south, east, and west, portals that lead to an enchanted land. T. B. Aldrich. Damaris duly arrived in Egypt, accompanied by Wellington, who had shown no sign of incipient hydrophobia and Jane Coop, her maid. It were best to describe them both now, and so get it all over. Whilst waiting one exeat upon Waterloo Station, the girl had annexed unto herself a holy terror in the shape of a brindle bull-pup. The hilarious quadruped had twined its leash about the leg of its master, who was an alien from Wapping, and the spout of a zinc watering-can which a porter had left upon the platform— for which joke it had received vile cuff on its wrinkled physiognomy from the alien master. Like some avenging goddess, Damaris, the ladylike, almost finished product of Onslow House, sprang straight at the man, smote him with the flat of the hand upon the face, and pounced upon the yelping pup. "'Take your leg out of the dog's chain, you idiot!' she cried, her eyes blazing, her perfect teeth flashing in a positive snarl. "'Be quick! Don't be so clumsy!' "'How dare you hit a dog! He hit him!' she announced to the interested, sympathetic crowd. "'Hit him on his lovely face. "'You give that dog back to me, Missy. He's mine.' "'He's mine. I've got him, and my mother is one of the heads of the society that protects children. "'That's got nothing to do with dogs. "'This is a puppy, so it's a child,' had come the decisive reply. "'And I'll buy him, though I needn't really, if I refer it to the society. "'I'll take ten pound for him.' The child fished for her purse, which contained a half-crown in her ticket, and flung it with a supreme gesture of contempt at the man's feet, then, squeezing up the dog in her arms, tore a simple gold bracelet off her left arm, and flung it after the purse. Worth two pounds at the most. Then, from out of a first-class carriage of the train, waiting to start for Southampton, slowly descended Olivia, Duchess of Longacres. The girl and the alien had their backs turned to her, but the crowd had seen, and looked, started to laugh, and then had become silent, so great was the dignity of the old lady. Clad in a voluminous grey taffeta gown, from under which peeped little crimson shoes, covered with a huge loose ermine wrap, with the black poke-bonnet on top of the outrageous golden peruke, and the grey parrot bobbing up and down excitedly upon her shoulder, she stood silently taking in the scene. There was the light of battle in the famous hawk's eyes as she listened to the girl defending the pup, and her splendid teeth shone in a grin of enjoyment as she suddenly rattled her ebony stick upon the alien's ankle-bones, those most tender bits of anatomical scaffolding. There was a yell of pain as the alien backed hastily into the arms of a lusty youth, who had continuously besought Damaris to allow him to put it across the blighter's ugly mug and a cry of delight as Damaris ran to the old lady's side, and squeezing the pup in one arm, made the sweetest little reverence in the pretty continental way, before she excitedly wrung her godmother's hand. "'Moraine! He hit the puppy, and I've bought him for ten pounds. At least Dad will send a cheque to-night. I've given him half a crown and my bracelet on account.' "'Call Hobson,' said her grace to the bird, who obeyingly had shrilly piped, "'Tumble up, men, tumble up!' until Hobson the maid suddenly surged from the second class and ploughed her way through the delighted crowd. "'Give the purse and bracelet to my maid, you swab,' supplemented the parrot. "'At once,' finished her grace, just as with a cry of, "'Here's Dad!' 
Damaris ran to meet her father, who, having got hug up in the traffic, had failed to meet the train. He listened patiently, with dancing eyes, to the story, smiled across at the Duchess, gave the man a pound note and a jolly good talking to, and acquired a bull pup with the Rodney Stone train, which they promptly christened Wellington, as it had won at Waterloo. Wellington forthwith developed an inordinate jealousy of Jane Coop. Jane Coop was maid, adviser, and buffer to the girl whom she loved more than any one on earth. Born on the squire's lands, she had developed a positive genius for mothering delicate lambs and calves and sickly chicks, so that when a crisis had arrived most immediately after the birth of Damaris, the squire had bundled the highly certificated nurse into a motor and sent her packing back to London, and called upon Jane Coop to rise to the occasion. She had risen. Bonnie and plump, she had taken the weakly little bit of humanity, also the situation, into her strong, capable hands— treated the mother and babe just as she would have treated a couple of delicate lambs, and pulled them both through. From that day forth she had dominated the house, tyrannized over the squire and his lady, defied each and every governess who had shown signs of undue strictness, and found her reward for her devotion in the love of the child who teased her to death, and in the long run obeyed her. She had shown herself a positive sheep-dog on board the boat, she had rounded up her white lamb and yapped upon the heels of those who dared approach with too great familiarity, had bristled and shown her teeth upon every possible occasion, until those who would have fain led the girl into new and verdant pastures had fled at the sheep-dog's approach, leaving them both to enjoy the novelty of everything, each after her own kind. Damaris revelled in it all, the seagulls, the lighthouses, the ships that passed in the day and night, and the tail-end of a storm they hit up in the bay, whilst Jane Coop invented new verses to the litany as she tried, in her cabin, to solve the problem of two into one, and Wellington, somewhere under the water-line, daily gave a fine imitation of a hell-hound to a circle of admiring seamen. To his last hour at sea, Captain X will forever retain the memory of what it cost him in strength of will to maintain his dignity, when standing straight and exceedingly beautiful, with one hand full of lists, the huge bulldog at her feet, with a black bow under his left ear, and an assembly of the greatest sufferers before her, Damaris, two days before arriving at Port Said, solemnly read out the items and the shop-price of each article chewed, damaged, or totally destroyed during the voyage by the dog. Shoes, boots, pants, edges of trousers, two pipes, one pouch, six packets of gaspers, one entire tray of crockery, one air-cushion dropped in fright by stewardess, one coil of rope, one life-buoy, one can dented, one man's ankle slightly bruised, one bare patch to ship cat's back, and so on and so forth, whilst murmurs arose from the sufferers who chorused that they didn't want no compensation, only too pleased to part with their bits, as long, etc., etc. "'I do not think the fault was all on one side, Miss Heathencourt,' summed up the captain, speaking in guttural consonant and flattened vowel from suppressed emotion. "'The, uh, the plaintiff must have approached the dog as he was chained, and—' "'A bulldog,' broke in Damaris, "'is a magnet to the best in every human being. They simply could not help themselves. They were drawn in within reach of his teeth. They—' "'I cannot quite,' interrupted the captain. "'Yes?' Chips, the carpenter, showed signs of bursting with information withheld. "'Beggin' your pardon for interruption, sir, but what the lady says is true. We just couldn't keep away. I saw the chink—beg pardon, sir, I mean, ling-a-ling, the laundryman, burning joss-sticks in front of him. 
pointing of stubbed finger towards shameless dog, one night when the dog was asleep. Just worship, please, sir, on all parts. And Mrs. Pudge, what didn't oughter have been down in our quarters, dropped the air-cushion, sir, cause she missed and stays— I cannot, interrupted the captain, then choked at a mental vision of Mrs. Pudge, who scorned such frivolous inventions as whalebone to support the figure, then trumpeted behind his handkerchief, ending in that combined half-snort, half-giggle, which is so disastrous to dignity and complexion. I cannot allow the, uh, form of the company's stewardesses to be so discussed. Begging your pardon, sir, fiercely rejoined Chips, who was getting a bit of his own back on Mrs. Pudge. I'm using the nautical expression, sir. She failed to get about when that there dog, pointing of stubbed thumb at heedless dog, growled, cause she has water in the knee. I'm using an anatomical expression now, sir. Her knee—this, sir, slapping of knee with horny hand of toil, the ship's knees, miss, addressing Damaris, whose straight brows had met in almost puzzlement, is chalk on the forepart of the lower mast in which the heel—heel, heel, miss, of the topmast rests. "'Yes, sir. Her knee may have water in it, but no one couldn't say the same of her grog.' To prevent death from combustion, the speechless captain here intimated by signs that the culprit should stand up. And the brindle of Rodney Stone stood straight, whilst the men's eyes glistened as they fidgeted upon their feet from very joy in the spectacle. His skull was massive and perfectly shaped, the underjaw square and strong, thrust up and beyond the upper, the teeth were perfect, even large and also strong. The nose was black and large, well back between the eyes, which were set low and deep and wide apart, but well in front and round, with a deep stop between them, the honestest outward sign of his gallant, loving heart. The ears were rose, not in colour, of course, but of rose-leaf shape, set high and small and fine, the face was closely wrinkled, the chop well down, and the loose skin in abundant folds about his throat and neck. The chest was wide and deep and prominent, the shoulders were tremendously muscular, the body was short, with a roach back, fine in the rear, the forelegs, short and strong, with the developed calves which give them the appearance of being bowed, whereas the bones are really straight. The feet turned out a bit, with toes split up and arched, the tail set low and straight down, anything but a glad tail. His heart was of the finest, loving, courageous, capable of hurling its owner to instant battle or death, in defence of the one loved, at other times rendering him, in its gentleness, an almost ludicrous spectacle of adoration. Of such was Wellington, and if the description is somewhat detailed and technical, it is because he happens a good deal into the book. The Duchess had been put into the train for Port Said by Ben Kellum, who, inwardly kicking at her sage advice, looked as despondent as a camel who considers its strength unequal to its burden. "'Cheer up, lad,' she cried as the train moved off. "'Cheer up. Something is sure to happen before long.' Which was a perfectly safe prophecy to make where Damaris was concerned. Arrived at Port Said, she put off in a boat with her maid and her parrot, and found her godchild, who did not expect her, on deck, entranced with all she saw. Yes, of course, Port Said is a sink of iniquity in a place of odours and a fold for native wolves and sheep's clothing, also a centre for antiquities made in Birmingham, or by the vendor himself in the hot weather, and a market for things which should not be sold, much less bought. In fact, in one short sentence, it is a deal of cosmopolitan wrongdoing. All the same, you need not buy and you need not listen nor look. 
and if it is the first bit of the Orient you have met with for the first time in your life, well, it is the East, and jolly exciting and interesting, too. Damaris rushed at the old lady, and having curtsied to her, gathered her up in her strong arms and hugged her tightly, just as Captain X, who during one trip had had the Duchess as a passenger, and therefore loved her, came along. As they turned in the direction of the dining saloon, the girl looked over her shoulder at the two maids, and smiled. With a great love of their respective mistresses, as their sole bond in common, they stood, otherwise divided, staring at each other. "'Pleased to meet you again,' volunteered country-bred Jane, offering a plump hand. "'Hoping you're in good health,' responded Maria Hobson, making a corner in strawberry leaves, as she just touched the finger-tips. "'Wellington, you have met Deco, I think,' laughed the girl. "'Whoomp!' grunted the dog disdainfully, as he cocked an eye at the bird, which ruffled its feathers, spread its red tail, and looked down sidewise and spitefully for a long moment. "'My God!' it suddenly shrieked. "'My God!' and it swung about and rubbed its soft grey pate against its mistress's outrageous golden peruke, then hurled itself into the captain's shoulder. End of chapter 4 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org